0: Hello all and warm welcomes from warm times, well at least they are here anyway for a change, to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your North Wales based taste of true crime tales that hopefully you won't have heard or be too familiar with from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast that gives the show its title, where it's fantastic as ever having you guys here, the enthusiasts that keep the show rolling on because it's absolutely bugger all without you isn't it and i do hope that as you're hearing this then you and yours you're all good and that you're all well so exciting times with one thing and another coming up here on the show in the coming weeks watch this space is all i can say right now and there might be perhaps one or two slight tweaks to the show coming up as well now with these they're only perhaps right now and i'll try as much as i can to be business as usual I'll still be about, I'll still be talking the same nonsense and coming out with stuff about Ken Barlow shagging or calling the BBC twats and everything. I just may have to alter a slight couple of things for a period of time. But of course, I'll keep you guys informed. Thanks time now as ever on the show. Firstly, for the feedback from you lot about the show's recent Monsters of Berkshire two-part episode, The Beast of Beanum. Now it's a real monster Burgess is, isn't he? there's no other suitable word there for him and today is exactly where he deserves to end his days for his crimes which he very probably will do and good riddance feedback's been fantastic about both parts so cheers very much guys and they're both out now if you've not heard them yet patreon bonus episode 31 is also out now devil in the doll's house which is again one of the most horrific that I've ever covered here on the show. It's certainly one that upset me very, very much. And the next set of thanks, as always, are out to both the returning and the new patreon supporters of the show. who have got to hear this episode. Shout-outs this time around go to Fraser Spence, Kay Myers, Karen Parker, Hannah Savage, Julie Davis, Kathy Woods, Claire Carmichael, Andrea Barnes, Amanda Saltenberger, Sarah Jardine. Davida, David Mullen, Lauren Clayton, Susie D, Jew Harper, Michelle De Oud, Cat Woods, plus Lou Siddons, Anne and Lucy Helica who've each edited their pledges. Apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. What else can I say guys? It's super kind of you and your support means the absolute world so thank you very much. Stuff's gone out for some of you and I hope that you've all had chance to catch up with the unreleased bonus episodes that are available for supporters. If you want to be like these guys, get yourself some extra enthusiast tales, such as Enough Rope, or Maths Misunderstandings and Murder, or The Samaritan and the Salvationist, to name just a few of them, then it's very reasonable, and it's very simple to do. Over on the Patreon site, it's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, with the same show logo and everything, so you can't miss it. Or well, there's a link always in the episode show notes, so you can just head on in there, and you're absolutely flying quicker than a millennial bell end becoming offended by something. You could be hearing these and more with bonus episode number 32 coming later this month. But bonus episodes aside, we're on the regular show now, and I've got a listener-written episode for you this time around. I made up that friend of the show Julia Crane has once again researched and written up a tale for the enthusiast following a previous one this series, Horror at the Teddy Bears Picnic. Now Julia always seems to be on the same wavelength as me with her choices and this episode is no exception. It's one I was aware of but hadn't considered at all but when it was suggested to me I knew that Julia would do the tale justice. It's also come at an absolutely perfect time in the series as for the past few months we've had some proper darkness here on The Enthusiast haven't we? We've had the whole maniac arc, Ealing Vicarage, we've had an awful Taylor of stalking and then a double parter recently about a triple child murder so you'll find this episode has a bit of a lighter tone this round. It was very necessary I thought. What are your opinions of the British royal family? You might be sat here listening in your front room with your jubilee coloured bunting up, drinking out of a Harry and Meghan mug with your Union Jack suit on, and shit commemorative plates galore as far as the eye can see. Or you might think that they're a massive drain on the civil list, and the monarchy should be replaced with a republic. Don't know, I'm sure that everybody has their own opinion about them, and it's the royal family that are the subject of the episode this time around. Well, specifically one of them and one of the two that personally I've got the most time for out of the lot of them. There is of course Liz herself, she actually inspected me many years ago when I was in the forces and she came to present a colour to the station I was at, and the one who's the subject of the episode, who passed through the village where I'm from when I was a baby, looked at me while passing in the entourage and I reportedly screamed and cried in my mum's arms. Couple of contrasting musings there I know. Now I'm far from being a royalist myself, but I do like both of these. They're both proper characters, they have that right kind of dry humour that I like, and they're feisty enough, and their work ethics and schedules leave the toothless Lambert and Butler-smoking bone-idle slefts who think that a day's work is choosing which ghastly named child of theirs to send around to the neighbours for dodgy facts so far behind that they need a bloody DeLorean and some dodgy plutonium to catch up with them. Both the Queen and the member concerned here have, over the years, had skirmishes with the kind of genre we mix with. They're each remarkable stories that are well worthy of a tale, and the latter of these is coming your way today. Now, it's probably not the tale concerning the royals that you're thinking of, but we will meet that bloody fool at a later date here on the show, I promise you. As always, I've added very little to the account and have only reworked it to suit my own narrative style and I hope that you find it as interesting and informative as I did. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events concerning a member of the royal family, but there is categorically nothing that may disturb or distress this time around, so there's no need for discretion. Bear that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast, and of course Julia, for an episode that I've entitled The Princess and the Magnificent Seven. To begin the episode then, we're back to March 1974, the month wherein Corrie, enthusiast favourite, the top shagger himself, Ken Barlow, was in the middle of divorcing his second wife, Janet Reed, who was later wrongly accused of murdering maybe he killed her with love or something. People magazine was first released in the US, and the Volkswagen Golf was launched in the then West Germany, the Terracotta Army was discovered in Zion, and further afield in the Philippines, Japanese intelligence officer Hiro Onoda emerged from the jungle, blinking, slightly bewildered, dressed in a rather tattered army uniform and carrying a sword, a service rifle and ammunition, completely unaware that World War II had ended 29 years earlier. As Japanese soldiers were categorically told not to surrender during the war, Onoda had hidden himself in the jungle until 1974 and it wasn't until his former commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi was tracked down and flown to Lubang from Japan to give Onoda the order in person to lay down his arms that he finally complied. After surrendering, Onada returned to Japan, living a full life until he died in January 2014 at the age of 91 years. Now, I wonder if the first thing he said when he came out of that jungle was, Am I a celebrity? Get me out of here. Got to get these gags in when you can, haven't you? Back in the UK in March of that year, however, a 26-year-old man who had used several names in the past but was currently calling himself John Williams was living at number three Christchurch Road in Crouch End in North London. On the afternoon of Wednesday, the twentieth of March, nineteen seventy-four, Williams loaded up his rented white Ford Escort car with a collection of items in a bag that he'd been collecting over time for the activities that he had planned in mind for that very evening placing the bag onto the passenger seat williamson locked up and with a furtive look over his shoulder got into the car and set off to undertake the 36-mile journey that he had in mind constantly glancing at the bag as he did so the objects in the bag included two revolvers a 22 and a 38 four pairs of handcuffs a quantity of volume tablets and a lengthy somewhat rambling ransom letter it was a haul that represented the culmination of an obsession for john williams had been thinking about committing a particular crime the crime in question being to kidnap a well-known public figure with whom he'd become totally obsessed in the two years leading up to the 20th of march 1974 what had originally started out as just a seed of an idea had started to become a reality for Williams, and in this time he'd developed a clear plan for committing the crime. This plan had taken considerable effort and organisation, which had included him flying to Madrid to purchase the two revolvers, acquiring the handcuffs on the drugs, and under another name renting number 17 Silverdale Road which was at the time and still is a detached house in a quiet residential dead-end street located in the town of fleet which is just off the m3 in hampshire with all this in place john williams had hired the white ford escort he was to use for the evenings activities and then went through his personal documents destroying items such as his passport that would reveal his true identity with the organisation for the planned kidnapping complete john williams's intention was to abduct his victim at gunpoint take her back to the house in hampshire and hold her there until a ransom demand of three million pounds was paid he would bought a supply of food in three night dresses and even a toothbrush for his hostage now three million pounds in 1974 is estimated to be almost 30 million pounds in money today a staggering amount which goes to show the kind of wealth and status background of the individual concerned. Because she was such a well-known figure, her itinerary was often published in the national newspapers, and with this information, John Williams was able to identify a suitable time and a place to kidnap her. On the days leading up to March the 20th, he'd weighed up a few possibilities for this. He'd initially planned to abduct her while she was out riding near her home in Sandhurst, which is a town in Hampshire less than 10 miles away from Fleet where he'd rented the detached house, but he disregarded this plan and had decided instead to stage the kidnapping on a road close to the home of the victim's parents. On the evening of Wednesday 20th of March then, at about 8pm and by now having driven to central London, John Williams spotted his target, who was, as he already knew from a published itinerary, travelling down the mall in a chauffeur-driven, maroon-coloured 1969 Austin Princess Vanden Plas limousine, bearing the registration number NG1N. Accompanying this target was her new husband of just five months, and three other people, including a chauffeur, an appointed bodyguard, and a personal assistant. The group were on their way back from watching a charity film about horse riding in Pall Mall, when with a car approaching the junction between the Mall and Marlborough Road, John Williams swerved his white Ford Escort sharply in front of the limousine, causing it to stop suddenly and preventing it from continuing with its journey. With the white Ford Escort blocking the path of the limousine that he was driving, chauffeur Alex Collander wasn't quite sure of what was going on. Now stationary on the Mall, with the white Escort preventing him from continuing any further, He watched as John Williams got out of the Ford Escort and started making his way round to the rear of the limousine. Now whilst the mall is a long, wide, straight road, it's also lined with trees and is poorly lit. And under these conditions, it took the passengers sitting in the limo a moment or two to realise what was happening. Now what Alex Collander didn't know at this point, being the only one who could see clearly was that john williams had on his person two fully loaded revolvers and that he was intent on kidnapping the individual who was seated in the back of the limousine the first to react was inspector james wallace beaton a bodyguard who was employed to protect the celebrity couple he jumped out of his position in the front passenger seat of the car and not realizing the full danger of the situation confronted williams who immediately responded by drawing his revolver and firing at Beaton wounding him in the shoulder despite this injury Beaton responded by drawing his own firearm and issue Walther PPK semi-automatic pistol and firing back at Williams however the fact that he'd been shot in the shoulder affected the bodyguard's aim and Beaton missed his target although he then made a further attempt to shoot Williams. Beaton's weapon had jammed after his initial shot leaving him unarmed and vulnerable against the would-be kidnapper As he moved to the near side of the car and tried to sort out the issue with his gun Williams told Beaton to drop his weapon or he would shoot the people in the car With only a malfunctioning pistol available Beaton had no choice but to drop the weapon onto the pavement With the group now unarmed against the attacker Williams tried to open the passenger door of the car, however, the couple inside were holding the door closed against him. With all this going on, the personal assistant, Rowena Brassi opened the near side car door and made a run for it, and presumably because she was not a threat to his plans, Williams let her go. With the rear car door now open, Beaton got into the car, taking the PA's place on the back seat. He threw himself across the couple protecting the all-important female from Williams Frustrated that he was now unable to get into the car Williams aimed his revolver at the car window and the people inside and in a defensive action Beaton put his hand up just as Williams fired The bullet shattered the car window hitting Beaton in the right hand and leaving the group showered with shattered glass Now seriously injured but considering the safety of the group to be paramount Beaton told the couple to release their grip on the car door his plan being to take Williams by surprise by kicking the door open and knocking him to the ground the minute that they let go the door however Williams yanked the door open and shot Beaton again this time hitting him in the stomach Beaton then fell from the offside door and lay motionless on the ground by the feet of the would-be kidnapper the next person to react was chauffeur Alex Collander, who tried to get out of the vehicle from his position in the driver's seat to confront the gunman. However, as Collander opened the car door, Williams put the gun up to Collander's head and told him not to move. Despite the obvious danger, Collander continued to try and exit the vehicle, grabbing for the gun and holding on to Williams' arm in the process. Now, the older man was no match for Williams, however, and he shot colander squarely in the chest seriously injured Collander fell to the ground alongside Beaton, with whom only a few minutes earlier he'd been sitting in the front of the limo so now having shot two people and with the pa having run off the kidnapper was now free to turn his attention to the remaining couple in the back of the car and in particular to confront the woman who was his intended target Williams shouted at the couple to open the door and waved his revolver in the air demanding that she leave the limo and come with him and that if she failed to comply he would shoot her the woman however refused his demands and remained in the back of the car with her husband maintaining a dialogue with the would-be kidnapper trying to reason him and keep him calm however Williams made a lunge for her and as he grabbed her arm and tried to pull her out of the car her husband grabbed her other arm starting a bizarre tug of war with the intended victim in the middle so what had started out as a carefully planned crime then turned into a sort of carry-on kidnapping shamble of bollocks with the intended victim's dress tearing from the neck downwards with her dress torn and being pulled between john williams and her own husband she eventually ended up on the floor of the car her husband throwing himself on top of her to protect her from her attacker at this point a freelance tabloid journalist called john brian mcconnell appeared mcconnell had happened to be going past the scene in a taxi and with his journalist's spidey sense heightened he stopped the vehicle and went to see what all this kerfuffle was about when he saw that there was a gunman threatening a couple in a car whom he recognized he tried to reason with him Telling him that the couple were friends of his and not to be silly, asking him to put the gun down. Instead of complying with this request, Williams demanded that McConnell get back, but when McConnell continued to move towards him, Williams drew his revolver again and shot McConnell in the chest. There were now three men laying bleeding and seriously injured on the mall. A local police constable, 22 year old PC Michael Hills, on duty at nearby st james's palace when he heard the loud noises and saw a commotion on the mall suspecting that there had possibly been a road traffic accident he radioed for backup and approached the scene not really knowing what was going on he tapped williams on the shoulder at which point williams turned around and drew his second revolver as pc hills immediately and instinctively tried to grab the firearm williams fired at him from point-blank range Hitting him in the stomach, but despite his injuries, PC Hills was able to stagger away from Williams and radio his colleagues at Cannon Hill Police Station, alerting them to the scene and requesting further assistance. He then made his way around the back of the car, pausing to pick up Inspector Beaton's discarded gun on the way. However, at this point he was on the point of collapse and was helped to the side of the road by another passerby called Glenmore Martin. Glenmore Martin was a passing motorist who was also a chauffeur, and seeing what was going on, he positioned the car that he was driving in front of Williams's Ford Escort to prevent Williams from returning to the car and driving away from the scene. Moving towards the would-be kidnapper, Martin saw that a gun was being pointed towards him, and at this point, he backed off and went to assist the injured PC Hills. John Williams was now starting to run out of options and he was desperate and disorientated because his carefully organised plan was not going as expected. What he'd expected to have been a routine straightforward snatch had up to that point involved four people being shot, two of them police officers, and the couple still remained in the car. Now all of this noise and palaver meant that people had started to gather to see what was going on. Unfortunately, one of the passers-by who noticed the crowd was Ronald or Ronnie Russell. Russell was a then 26-year-old married father of two from Strood, Medway, and he was also the area manager of an office cleaning company. He was, however, also a great unit of a man who was built like a brick shithouse, being a six-foot-two-inch, 17-stone former heavyweight boxer from Bethnal Green who had boxed at the Repton Club and had trained at the same gym as the Cray twins Russell had been working in Princess Square on Mall on the evening of the 20th of March and had been driving past the scene on his way home from work at about 8pm when he saw the gathering crowd and in particular the incident where Williams had confronted PC Hills Feeling that he might be of some use Russell stopped his car to see if he could assist in the situation now, Ronnie Russell was old school and he didn't mess about one bit. He came up behind Williams, who was still trying to pull the woman from the car at this point, and punched him as hard as he could in the back of the head. Williams spun around and fired at Russell in retaliation, fortunately missing him, but shattering the windscreen of a passing taxi instead. Undeterred, Russell turned his attention back to the gunman. Was still trying to pull his intended victim from the car and all the time threatening to shoot if she wouldn't go with him. Pulling back from Williams, she finally broke free from his grip and tried to make a break for it by opening up the near side car door and doing a backwards roll out of the car and onto the pavement, all this from the floor of the car and with her dress half hanging off. Williams ran around the car to try and intercept her, however, Ronnie Russell ran over to her and positioned himself between her and the gunman acting as a human shield. She was then pulled back into the car by her husband who shut the door leaving Ronnie Russell free to punch Williams in the face which he later described as throwing a left hook with all of my weight. He hit him so hard with his left Williams must have been absolutely begging for a right and he hit the ground like a one-legged fella doing the okey-cokey, Ronnie jumping on his back for good measure. With police backup by now starting to arrive on the scene, John Williams' stress levels were increasing even further, and surged with adrenaline, he leapt up like a man possessed. The first officer to respond to PC Hills' radio call for backup had been 21-year-old PC Peter Edmonds, who when he arrived at the mall, was confronted with an agitated Williams pointing a gun towards him. Knowing what must have been a terrifying ordeal for the young officer, with four victims with serious gunshot wounds, including two fellow officers on the ground, three cars parked haphazard across the road across each other, a six foot plus boxer, and a crazed looking gunman in the middle of it all, PC Edmonds must have been proper brick in it. Proper fill your pants with shrill time, that isn't it luckily for p c Edmonds Williams realized that he was being cornered, and rather than firing at Edmonds, he instead ran off into nearby St James's Park with p c Edmonds in hot pursuit, shouting at Williams to stop. Fellow police officers joined the chase, but it was p c Edmonds who caught up with the gunman throwing his coat over Williams's head and tackling him to the floor. Police colleagues who caught up with them then threw themselves on top of Edmonds and Williams and managed to disarm him leaving Edmonds free to arrest Williams who was cuffed and then taken to Cannon Road police station. A search of the gunman revealed that he had some £300 in notes on his person whilst inside the Ford Escort Williams' goodie bag a quantity of volume tranquilizers four sets of handcuffs and a bizarre ransom note were also discovered now in the 15 minute period between john williams's rented ford escort first swerving across the path of the limo to pc Edmonds apprehending the attacker a total of 11 shots were fired four people were shot and seriously injured and a kidnapping attempt was foiled each of the shooting victims was rushed to st george's hospital and thankfully each were to make full recoveries from their injuries. Now, looking back on this event, it seems absolutely extraordinary how close the plan of a lone wolf kidnapper came to succeeding in his aim. For the intended target of the attempt was not only a wealthy and well-known figure in 1970s London, she was Her Royal Highness Princess Anne, the only daughter of Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip and her parents' home that she was only 350 yards from returning to, down the mall in March 1974, was Buckingham Palace. Only 23 years old in 1974, in addition to being the only daughter of the Queen and Prince Philip, and third in line to the British throne, Princess Anne was known as being a modern royal for the time, partly because she was known to have inherited her father's temperament and would speak her mind, and partly because of her equestrian achievements. She was an accomplished horsewoman who had been voted BBC Sports Personality of the Year in 1971 after winning a gold medal at the European Eventing Championships, and at the time of the kidnapping, she was being tipped to be a future competitor in the 1976 Olympic Games. She was therefore considered to be hot property and worthy of a £3 million ransom demand. It was through a shared love of horses that she'd met a husband of five months 25 year old Mark Phillips a captain in the Queen's Dragoon Guards who had been part of the equestrian teams that won a world title in 1970 a European title in 1971 and Olympic gold medals in the 1972 Olympics by 1974 he'd also been twice champion at the badminton horse trials an event that he later went on to win on two further occasions comparatively new to the royal family Captain Phillips came from a military background rather than a royal one and having only married Princess Anne in November 1973 following the wedding he had to learn to cope with public scrutiny and was therefore still getting used to being in the public eye however the couple were known to covet and prefer their privacy and therefore he had not considered himself or his wife to be particular targets for would-be attackers. This was a view that was also shared by the Royal Protection Officers and at that time, a light-touch approach to Royal Security was generally adopted. While senior Royals would sometimes have a police motorcycle escort, this wasn't always the case and instead, police officers would communicate the movements of a Royal car over pocket radios. Usual practice was for just one bodyguard to accompany members of the royal family if they were taking part in an unofficial or relatively low-key activity around the London area, which had been the situation on the night of the attempted kidnapping. There was no specialist training given to any officers at the time undertaking this role. Indeed, in a later interview, Inspector Beaton is reported as saying, We took precautions, but nothing like you have today. I was walking past the door at the wrong time and they said, we want someone to help with the Royal Protection Team and that was it. There were no interviews or training. The vehicle in which the Royal couple were travelling, which was not a Rolls Royce has sometimes been mistakenly reported, but as we said was in fact an Austin Princess Van Den Plas limousine, was one of two similar cars that had been purchased by the Royal family in March 1972. This type of car was very popular amongst the rich and famous of that time with a similar model being owned by John Lennon and the actual car that was involved in the attempted kidnapping the model registration NG1 can now be seen at the Sandringham Museum in Norfolk although the twin of this car that was previously owned by the royal family is now said to be in private hands. Unbelievably, when you think about who would be travelling in it The vehicle had no radio communications installed in it either, as it was felt that this would ruin the aesthetics of the car. Yes, seriously. In an interview some 40 years after the event, Beaton said that a radio would have meant a lot of aerials, and on a royal car it was deemed that it would spoil the look of it. Unreal that, eh? Following the incident, Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips were immediately driven to Buckingham Palace in a police patrol car, presumably for a bloody big glass of whiskey and to phone Princess Anne's parents, who were in Indonesia on a state visit at the time, as well as her older brother Prince Charles, who was in the USA. The following day, accompanied by two police officers, Princess Anne visited St George's Hospital where the four injured men were being treated for their wounds to thank them for their heroism before in the spirit that I believe the Queen especially exudes along with Captain Phillips got back immediately to business as usual and returned to routine at their home on the grounds of Sandhurst he instructed cadets on the rifle range and she tended to her horses they then returned to their home in Hampshire Gatcombe Park so Who was the man calling himself John Williams and why did he want to kidnap Princess Anne? John Williams was in actual fact an unemployed 26-year-old labourer and petty burglar called Ian Ball, a young man with a history of what was later described as psychiatric disturbance and who in some accounts is reported to have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Whatever his precise mental health needs, It is known that he had been treated as an outpatient at the former St. Mary Abbots Hospital in Kensington in London between 1967 and 1972, which is no more closing its doors in 1992, but Pop Trivia Quiz was the hospital in which guitar legend Jimi Hendrix died on September 18th, 1970 after choking on his own vomit. Whilst he was here, Ball was given tranquilising drugs and it was suggested that he become an inpatient at the hospital, but he rejected this suggestion. Detectives had initially feared that Ball was part of the IRA, but he refuted this and told officers, I've got no friends, I'm a loner. I put a lot of thought and work into it. I can't expect people like you to understand or accept that I did it and planned it alone. Do you think I'm part of the IRA or something? If there'd been anyone else, they would have helped me at the scene. So completely off his own bat, Ball had attempted to snatch Princess Anne, but his motives for kidnapping her were bizarre to say the least. He decided to kidnap the royal who he thought would get him the most publicity, and had subsequently typed up a lengthy rambling note that reportedly criticised the royal family heavily, although its precise contents have never been made public. The note which was found in the Ford Escort after his arrest was addressed to Princess Anne's mother Queen Elizabeth II and demanded that £3 million should be organised into £5 sterling notes and placed in 20 unlocked suitcases. Furthermore, Ball had asked for these to be put on board an aeroplane that was destined for Switzerland and for the Queen herself to appear in person on the plane to confirm that his demands had been met and to verify that the signatures on the accompanying paperwork were genuine even more strangely ball stated later that rather than this being a selfish act on his part for his own gain that the ransom money was instead destined to help fund psychiatric support in the nhs and that in kidnapping princess anne he wanted to publicize the plight of the working classes so with this target in mind he began learning all that he could about the princess and began preparing for the operation obtaining the firearms from madrid and smuggling them back to the uk obtaining four sets of handcuffs and preparing a stockpile of food supplies and toiletries some weeks before the attempt he had rented the house and in the days leading up to the kidnapping for the final stage of his plan ball had shadowed Anne for five days merging into the crowd as he studied her routine and the people around her to find out where Anne was going to be at specific times all Ball had to do was call the Palace Press Office which told him the princess would be attending a charity film screening in London on the 20th of March 1974 he spent the days leading up to this making his final preparations renting both the typewriter used to create the ransom letter and the white Ford Escort under assumed names. As the police investigation continued, it appeared that Ball had used several names in recent months. The house in Fleet and typewriter had been rented under the name of Van der Fluis, whilst the white Ford Escort car that was used in the ambush of the Royal Limousine, and which was seen outside the house in Hampshire in the days leading up to the attempt, had been rented by Ball using the name John Williams the Williams name was also given when Ball reportedly established an address at a house in Harold Hill where he picked up mail representatives from each leasing company who'd had dealings with him all identified Ball when his photograph was shown to them whilst other people who'd met him described him as a recluse who kept to himself and rarely tried to make conversation with his neighbours before the house in Fleet was rented Ballard apparently lived for almost four years in a boarding house in the Bayswater area of London where residents there knew him as Peter although he was said to have called himself Ian Stewart and Anthony Stewart at other times and all agreed that he was a loner who rarely greeted any of his fellow boarders indeed was almost hostile to them and Ronald Hawley who lived next door to the house in Fleet which Ballard rented for a short time Told the Daily Mail newspaper following his arrest Nobody really knew him, he didn't speak to anybody. I think we only saw him twice during the couple of weeks that he was here. That's because he was too busy doing other things wrong, like writing ransom letters. Police had reportedly traced the typewriter used in writing the ransom letter that was found in Bull's car after the kidnap attempt. It had been rented from a company in fleet a week before the attack and had been returned on the Saturday before the attempt. Now in what may be a bit of embellishment, one office supply clerk at the firm later told newspapers that the police, in searching for the exact model typewriter Ball had used, had shown him some typed phrases that they'd discovered during a search at the fleet property to be able to match against the exact keys and typeface of each typewriter. One of the phrases on the paper had included the words Anne will be shot dead. Now it is quite believable that Ball would have surely because he'd shot four people after all and showed no remorse whatsoever about doing so. Deed later saying in an interview They were getting in my way so I had to shoot them. Well the police, that's their job, they expect to be shot. I took a chance of getting shot so why shouldn't they? What a guy eh? Following the attempt, there was huge press speculation as to how such an organised and costly attack could have been planned by an unemployed and mentally ill young man. This speculation was increased somewhat because kidnappings were at the time big news, as 19-year-old Patricia, or Patty Hearst, had been abducted on February 4th 1974 while she was a student at Berkeley University in the USA. Hearst, who was part of a wealthy newspaper and publishing family, had been taken by a group calling itself the Symbionese Liberation Army. She later announced that she'd joined the SLA, and after leaving the organisation, she was tried and imprisoned for the crimes that she'd committed whilst being a part of this group. Now, was still a missing person in March 1974, but this at the time only fuelled the scrutiny of the press in relation to of the attempted kidnapping of Princess Anne. Immediately after the incident, as we've said, there was speculation that the attempt may have been political and that Ball might be part of the IRA. And in the following days, a group calling themselves the Marxist-Leninist activist revolutionary movement wrote to the Times newspaper claiming responsibility for the attack. However, Scotland Yard dismissed any connection between that group and Ian Ball and the then Home Secretary Roy Jenkins in his briefing to the House of Commons confirmed that it was purely an isolated act conducted by an individual. A report into the attempted kidnapping was commissioned for Edward Heath who'd been elected as Prime Minister of the UK just three weeks before the incident with one of the recommendations being that a review of royal security should take place. Buckingham Palace subsequently released a statement saying that the royal family I quote had no intention of living in bulletproof cages however a stringent reorganization of the structure and operation of Scotland Yard's royalty protection branch did indeed take place in the following months with Inspector James Beaton continuing to work within the service when he returned to active duty. So as might be imagined for such a high profile case there was also a great deal of interest in Ian Ball's trial which took place relatively quickly and was held at the Old Bailey on the 22nd of May 1974 where he was charged with two counts of attempted murder wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm and with one charge of attempted kidnapping. Now why only two counts of attempted murder I don't know newspaper reports from the time described the stringent searches and careful checks carried out on everyone who entered the courtroom and how ball tall and smartly dressed sat in the dock with his head bowed for his court appearance only in registering his pleas did he speak and then it was in a clear strong voice when he spoke to plead guilty to the charges of attempted murder wounding with intent and kidnapping leaving it to the lord chief justice lord widgery To give consideration to his sentence, Mr. John Hayes and Q.C. speaking for Ball's defence described him as being a young man with significant mental health needs, which provided an explanation for his actions. Recounting how when Ball had appeared in court at an earlier custodial hearing on April the fourth, he'd also give a statement on what motivated his crime, saying, "I would like to say that I did it because I wish to draw attention to the lack of facilities." for treating mental illnesses under the national health service being unsure as to whether ball should receive a custodial sentence or whether he should indeed be detained in a special hospital lord widgery discussed the options with dr peter scott who was the home office's senior psychiatrist dr scott's opinion was that ball required treatment which would be difficult to provide in a prison facility. he stated that ball was still potentially suicidal and homicidal lord widgery then made an order for ball under the mental health act and sentenced him to be detained indefinitely in rampton special hospital after dr scott said that there was no room at broadmoor Brother reports have since suggested that broadmoor was not chosen to house ball because of its proximity to windsor castle Ian Ball showed no emotion and said nothing when he was told that he would be going to a special hospital. And where he to this day remains, little more is known about him apart from that he is still detained under the Mental Health Act and that he's been a patient at several hospitals over the years, including Broadmoor, since 1974. The only things of note concerning Ball is that a 38 Degrees online petition exists entitled Justice Not Vengeance for Ian Ball appealing against this continued incarceration which in the five years since it's been created has gleaned 264 out of 300 targeted signatures as of at the time of recording a link to it's in the episode show notes if you want to have a look and that in November 2001, a letter written by Ball in 1983 to the then Labour MP for Oldermeest, James Lamond, went up for auction at Dominic Winter Book Auctions in the Maxwell Street Auction House in Swindon's Old Town. Writing from Broadmoor Hospital, in the three-page typewritten letter, Ball claims that the whole affair was a hoax and an audacious attempt to bring down Margaret Thatcher's government, adding, I pleaded guilty because the object of the exercise was to get publicity to increase the sales of my autobiography and if I had pleaded not guilty I would have got no publicity at all as the newspapers knew it was all a joke so rather than admit they'd been deceiving the public they would have quietly buried me. Delusional or what eh? Ball then suggests to the MP that his story might help discredit the Tories who were flying high in the polls at the time and goes into detail about steps that the government allegedly took against him, and how he was not only framed for the crime, but also that he was physically beaten up in prison following his incarceration. A documents expert for Dominic Winter Book Auctions, Richard Westwood Brooks, how posh does he sound, said, This is quite a remarkable letter. It literally dropped out of a bag full of routine letters from MPs that were consigned to us for auction and I immediately realised that this was something different. I think its content is nothing other than chilling when you realise the nature of the person who wrote it, and is best summed up by a note from James Lamond fixed to it, which reads, How about this from a man in Broadmoor? Now what the letter fetched at auction, I'm unsure, although reports claim that it was expected to fetch up to £200. I don't know if that's right, if you like that kind of thing. Now the Princess Royal as herself never publicly commented on Ball's fate but she has acknowledged how lucky she was to escape from him. Speaking about the kidnapping when she was interviewed by the veteran broadcaster Michael Parkinson in the 1980s during a recording of his chat show Parkinson in Australia she stated that she was aware that public figures were vulnerable to danger and also that she was fortunate because the attack was conducted by only one person. She stated, If there had been more than one, it might have been a different story. If anybody was serious on wiping one out, it would be very easy to do. Now, the interview is available to see online, and Princess Anne exercises typical royal composure, telling, It was all so infuriating. I kept saying I didn't want to get out of the car, and I was not going to get out of the car. I nearly lost my temper with him, but I knew that if I did, I should hit him and he would shoot me. Now quite incredibly during the attack Princess Anne kept a clear head and counted the number of shots that had been fired by Ball to help her think through how she could escape from the situation. She was aware that Ball was running out of bullets and that without a gun the threat that he had against her would diminish. According to Princess Anne's evidence Ball had pointed his gun at her and said I want you to come with me for a day or two because I want two million. Will you get out of the car which prompted a feisty response from her now in some reports she's described to have responded to balls requests to leave the car by saying not bloody likely however she didn't confirm this during the Parky interview by contrast princess anne's husband captain mark phillips who was also part of this parkinson in australia interview told Parky that he hadn't given much thought to an attack of this type occurring before the events of that evening in march 1974 during the interview captain phillips said i was frightened i won't mind admitting it and then went on to say that the scariest part was being when police backup started arriving when he started to feel like a quote like a caged animal however as we now know Ian Ball's carefully planned attempt to kidnap Princess Anne was prevented due to the bravery of a number of people present who included members of the royal household as well as police officers and members of the public who stepped in to help almost unbelievably everyone who was involved in the incident survived and was able to recount the incident in court and in later interviews those directly involved came to be known as the Magnificent Seven and in september 1974 the seven who helped in foiling the plot were all recommended for awards for their bravery their actions in facing the armed and dangerous ian ball who was clearly no idle threat and well prepared to use his gun and to disregard their own safety in such a situation well it's absolutely remarkable isn't it and the commendations were well deserved The Magnificent Seven were each presented with their rewards by Her Majesty the Queen at an investiture at Buckingham Palace on the 26th of November 1974 and afterwards all seven were given a private reception with the Queen, Princess Anne and Captain Phillips. PC Hills shot when he ran from St James's Palace to assist with what he thought was a road traffic accident Was left with a bullet embedded in his liver. This could not be removed by the medical team, and therefore he was treated for his injuries, leaving the bullet in place. He was awarded the George Medal, a civilian honor awarded for gallantry not in the face of the enemy. Chauffeur Glenmore Martin, who blocked Ball's Ford escort with his own vehicle, was threatened by Ball when trying to help in the situation received the Queen's Commendation for Brave Conduct, which acknowledges brave acts by both civilians and members of the armed forces, for gallantry not in the presence of an enemy. John McConnell, the passing journalist who had tried to talk to Ball and was shot for his efforts, Princess Anne's chauffeur, Alex Colander, who'd worked for the royal family for 20 years and was shot after leaving the vehicle to try to intervene in the situation, and PC Peter Edmonds, who had chased and apprehended Ball, each awarded the queen's gallantry medal now the two remaining members of this magnificent seven were also awarded distinguished honors and my favorite out of the seven and julia's as well i know because i heard from her about this ronnie russell who it was later revealed was actually initially put into a police car on the night of the attempt the police not understanding his role in the event in all of the confusion but was quickly released was awarded the george medal He was officially notified of the award at the start of july 1974 and on the 5th of july of that year received the following telegram from buckingham palace we are so pleased and delighted to hear your good news anne recalling the events of the evening years later ronnie said i wasn't frightened i had no idea who was in the car but when i saw him shoot the copper i thought that's taking the piss, he needs sorting, so I went for him, I went to hit him around the back of the head and he turned and fired, it went through a taxi windscreen, He was very fast moving and was very very together telling him, just go away and don't be such a silly man, he stood there glaring at me with a gun and I hit him, I hit him as hard as I could, if he'd been a tree would have fallen over and he was flat on the floor face down, so I jumped on his back for good measure, I could have died, yeah, but I knew what I was doing. I just stood rigid and braced myself, waiting for the shot I expected to come and hit me in the back. I honestly thought that I was going to die, but I didn't care. The only person I didn't want to get shot was Princess Anne. I still believe that the life of a member of the royal family is much more important than mine. What an absolute proper legend, eh? Ronnie later told that when he was given the medal, The Queen told him, the medal is from the Queen of England, the thank you is from Anne's mother. Now there are conflicting reports also that the Queen paid off Ronnie's mortgage back in 1974 as a thank you gesture following his bravery, but in February 2020, a report from the Daily Mirror newspaper claims that following an interview, Ronnie Russell had asked them to include the following statement. There seems some confusion that the Queen paid my mortgage off. This is not true and it never happened. At the time this was mentioned by some visiting police officers that Her Majesty was keen to thank me with more than a medal but I was never paid anything. Earlier this year after suffering a series of strokes and battling cancer twice in ill health Ronnie Russell reluctantly placed his medal and some of the associated memorabilia including the official letter from 10 Downing Street informing him of the award, a letter from the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, and the telegram from Princess Anne for sale at auction to help pay for his retirement and his eventual funeral costs. His only caveat at selling something like this was, I quote, What I would like is whoever does eventually buy the medal, I would hope they might invite me somewhere to tell them about what happened on the night. Now the medal and the associated memorabilia was estimated to sell for between £15,000 and £20,000 at auction and in March 2020 the items were indeed bought by an anonymous UK buyer at Dick's Noonan Web Auctioneers but for the sum of £50,000 to which Ronnie said For something I thought that I would never sell, I never believed it would sell for this amount I am absolutely blown away Now, I really, really hope that the buyer took him up on his caveat, don't you? I mean, it's proper something for collectors, that is, isn't it, anyway? But how amazing would it be to hear that story from the man himself, who looks and sounds like a proper East End archetypal character, proper like Lenny McLean or something? Well worth the price of a pint or two, that, wouldn't it be? Imagine that, that's absolutely legend, that would be. The most prestigious award was reserved for the bodyguard who'd been sitting in the front passenger side of the limo, Inspector James Wallace Beaton. He joined the Metropolitan Police in 1962 at the age of 19 and had been Princess Anne's personal protection officer since her marriage to Captain Phillips five months before. A trained marksman, Beaton was a member of SO14, Scotland Yard's special operations branch, and had only been part of the Royalty Protection Squad for just 12 months. In total, Beaton was shot three times by Ball, and when he was interviewed about the incident for Tatler magazine in 2020, he recalled that he felt I quote, tired and drunk after being shot, and remembered collapsing on the road from his injuries. After the incident, he was taken by ambulance to St George's Hospital, where the bullets were removed from him. Beaton spent two weeks in hospital and remained off work for six months before returning to the Royalty Protection Service where he continued in his role of protecting the royal family. In a 2014 interview with the Times newspaper he recalled that there was no psychiatric support available back then and after his physical injuries had healed he simply returned to work as normal. Reliving the frightening moment that the path was blocked on the evening of March 20th jim told the times i thought it was somebody who wanted to be a pain in the neck there was no hint of what was to happen he went on to explain how the security measures had changed immediately after the incident saying i had nothing there was no backup vehicle the training was non-existent but then again we thought nothing was going to happen they're highly specialized now highly trained explaining how they'd stopped using the brand of gun that jammed on the night He remembered how Anne's security was beefed up immediately revealed at a hospital visit to him the next day recalling She turned up with two policemen From then on, that's what it was which is why the Walthers were got rid of overnight. Jim Beaton returned to protecting Princess Anne after recovering from his wounds and held the post until 1979. In 1982, he became the Queen's police officer was appointed lieutenant of the royal victorian order in 1987 advancing to commander in 1992 after retirement from the police service at the rank of chief superintendent the same year he worked as head of security with Elfoyle in aberdeen before ultimately retiring in 2000 but back in 1974 inspector beaton the royal protection officer was awarded the george cross the second highest award of the uk honor system and awarded for acts of the greatest heroism or of the most conspicuous courage in circumstances of extreme danger today his medal can be seen at the ashcroft gallery in the imperial war museum where it's currently placed on loan now aside from being the only royal to have had a kidnap attempt made against her The Princess Royal does have another distinction. She's the only royal with a criminal record. Oh yes, they can all be nicked. Well, of course, apart from Liz, of course. I mean, she can't prosecute herself, can she? And Princess Anne has had a couple of skirmishes with the law over the years. She was given a written warning for speeding on the M1 in November 1972, but Thames Valley Police decided not to prosecute. In 1977, the then 26-year-old Anne was fined £40 for doing 96 miles per hour in a 70-mile-per-hour zone. Whilst in 1990, she was banned from driving for a month and fined £150 after she admitted two more offences of speeding. These are always put down to her free spirit and how she sometimes thinks, Oh, I thought I was being escorted. Then in 2001, she was again convicted of speeding after she'd admitted driving at 93 miles per hour in a 70 mile per hour zone, was fined £400, ordered to pay £30 costs and given five penalty points on her driving licence. What do you reckon, Princess Anne driving for McLaren next season or rising around Hazard County with Roscoe P. Coltrane legging it after her? What do you reckon? Then the following year she became the first senior royal to attend court for more than 100 years when on November the 21st 2002 she appeared at East Berkshire Magistrates Court in Slough under the name Anne Elizabeth Alice Lawrence and pitted against Regina, her mother. The princess was charged with her second husband Commodore Tim Lawrence of being in charge of a dog that was dangerously out of control in a public place Contravene in section 3.1 of the dangerous dogs act 1991 the princess royal appeared with commodore lawrence and her two children by her first marriage to captain phillips 25 year old peter and 21 year old zara were standing before the bench the princess was asked at the outset to confirm her name and address and then to state how she pled guilty was her one word response The incident in question had occurred on April the 1st two days after the death of Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother while the princess and her husband were walking their three English bull terriers in the park around Windsor Castle. As they approached a dividing line between the public and private parts of the grounds and were preparing to put their dogs into their car two boys, cousins aged 7 and 12, appeared on their bicycles. The court was told that one of the bull terriers, Dottie bolted from her owners and jumped at the youths knocking them over and causing them to panic the older boy suffered cuts on his collarbone and two bites to his legs whilst the other was left with scratches on his right forearm and the back of his left leg although none of the wounds required stitches the crown prosecutor anthony smith said that the pet bit the boys and that they were i quote traumatized but defense lawyer hugo keith claimed that the dog had only nipped them describing the injuries as superficial scratches which required only antiseptic dressing and anti-tetanus treatment and adding the court is entitled to believe that in time they will make a full recovery from the distress they have experienced now the penalties available for the offense allow for a fine of up to five thousand pounds six months in jail and the destruction of the dog but super witness Dr Roger Mugford a zoologist and psychologist who was described to the court as being the leading expert in Britain on dog aggression testified that Dotty was a placid and playful dog and that in the incident she'd only used to incise her teeth which terriers used to groom themselves rather than the four canine ones that they used to attack he further that she was a quick learner and could be retrained passing sentence district judge penelope hewitt spared dotty's life but said that she must undergo training and be kept on a lead in all public places but also warned the princess that her dog would be destroyed if there were any further incidents the judge said she had no doubt that the owners of dotty were extremely responsible and that after undergoing the training that she was mandating the dog would pose no danger to society but she warned It nevertheless is a big responsibility, and they have to be aware that if anything goes wrong, if there is another repeat of what happened on Easter Monday, then that is the end of it. Princess Anne was fined £500 in order to pay £250 compensation to each of the victims, as well as £148 in court costs. But the families of the two boys who were not named expressed disgust at the sentence, saying, We do not think justice has been done The dog is still free and is a danger to society Therefore the decision made today is neither moral nor just Our children were lucky that they avoided grievous injuries Other children may not be so lucky Our children have been psychologically affected And are fearful of going out on their own They've become very fearful of all dogs And still have nightmares If the dog had been put down It would have been recognition of this and helped our children psychologically can't really see that myself hamming that up a bit there i think now princess anne and her dogs were in the shit again the following year and on the 22nd of december 2003 whilst arriving at sandringham in order to spend christmas there one of anne's terriers savaged faros the queen's oldest corgi with such ferocity that three bones in its leg were broken and the animals sadly had to be destroyed the following day. At first, it was looking like Dottie was the culprit, although it was later established to have been another of Anne's terriers called Florence, who five days after this, bit a royal maid. Now, whether Florence got the machine after this, I don't know. So aside from having devil dogs being able to backward roll out of vehicles like a boss, Driving like Bowen Luke Duke and the only, being the only royal with a criminal record, the Princess Royal works tirelessly and is today involved with over two hundred charities and organizations in an official capacity, including being President of Save the Children, a position that she's held since nineteen seventy initiating the Princess Royal Trust for Carers in nineteen ninety one and patron of several others, including TransAid, St Andrew's First Aid, and Wise. The work for these is constant and takes her across the world extensively to do so and you have to hope that today the security detail is somewhat better than it was 46 years ago because the threat against her is still very real as was proved in february of this year on february the 27th a series of telephone calls was received by gloucestershire police from a man 35 year old james bollinger Stating that he was going to Gatcombe Park to stab the princess and anybody else who was there because I quote, he told the call handler Princess Anne was controlling his mind by moving his satellites. Later the same afternoon at three fifteen p.m., royal protection officers apprehended a man in the grounds of Gatcombe Park, who was found to be the very same caller, James Bollinger. Although when arrested, he was unarmed. When arrested, Bollinger told officers that he had mental health issues and he hoped that his arrest would get him the help he needed. And indeed he did. He was on psychiatric medication at the time and had come to the attention of courts and health authorities several times within the preceding years for offences involving alcoholism and harassment. Four years previously, he had received a 20-week suspended jail sentence after he admitted failing to comply with a community order imposed by Cheltenham magistrates for visiting his estranged wife Gillian in December 2015, despite a restraining order prohibiting him from doing so. He was also convicted of harassing a woman named Claire Dean over a period of two months between December 2015 and February 2016, whom he repeatedly visited while under the influence of alcohol, despite her also having a restraining order against him. Now whether or not she was an ex-partner of his is unclear. Bollinger had had consistent problems with alcohol and mental issues following this, culminating in his calls to police in February 2020. He was still on bail after being lifted in the grounds of Gatcombe Park when on June 17th of this year at 11.45am, Bollinger once again called 999, again saying he was having thoughts about stabbing the princess and again stating that the princess was, I quote, moving his satellites, which was affecting my well-being. 30 minutes later, Bollinger was arrested by police at his home in Minchin Hampton at 12.15pm, and was held in custody before appearing in Cheltenham Magistrates Court the following day by video link from the Gloucestershire Police Custody Unit at Quedgeley. Lee Mott, defending Bollinger, told the court, he does not remember making the original call to the police in february i was with him when the 999 call was played back to him where he agreed that the voice was his and that he had said some horrible things he said he was sorry he had threatened princess anne mr mott furthered that bollinger was on psychiatric medication and had hoped that the case could have been dealt with earlier so his mental health issues could be addressed though of course covid restrictions had prevented this. Bollinger admitted making a malicious communication on February 27th by making numerous phone calls to the police control room which conveyed a threat and caused distress to the call handler whilst also admitting a similar charge of making a malicious communication on June 17th that was grossly offensive and menacing. Chairperson of the magistrates Andrew Hill sentenced Bollinger to a 12-month community order that includes attending a program to address his alcohol and mental health problems, as well as a six-day rehabilitation activity, whilst a six-month exclusion order banning Bollinger from entering Gatcombe Park was also imposed. He told Bollinger that he hoped he would get the help he needs. Let's hope that that just works out. So despite the security there's always a very real and constant threat to the high profile members of the royal family and the Metropolitan Police maintains a register of people of interest who are known to have contacted members of the royals on a regular, weird and worrying basis. As of this year there was a total of 122 people on it. Within the top category of high concern there are 9 names which is up from 5 just a year ago. Security experts believe that the Prince Andrew saga, the well-documented Duke York's friendship with late paedophile Jeffrey Epstein, and especially the car crash news night interview that he gave, which is bloody awful if you've not seen it, look it up, it's just shocking, that sparked such a backlash, has increased the disregard that some people have for the royals, whilst others have been angered by the addition of Meghan Markle to the royal family and her and Prince Harry's subsequent decision to step back from royal duties. In fact, the number of noted royal family stalkers was also seen to rise ahead of the couple's wedding in May 2018. The 122 people on the current list are being monitored by the Met's Fixed Threat Assessment Centre which is staffed by police officers, psychiatrists who are experts on stalkers and mental health nurses and which categorises their risk potential by utilising a risk profile programme to come up with a rating for each individual with the aim to establish if those on the list pose a real danger to public figures or are only blustering. Many of them are suffering from serious mental health problems and have fallen through the care net and their names have all been put forward for assessment by the Met's Royalty and Specialist Protection Unit which identifies people whom officers feel need further investigation. Only in the low concern group has the number of people decreased from 73 last year to 21 whilst in 2019 there were 82 people assessed as posing a moderate threat this year, that total rose to 92. Projects Director at Specialist Security Service for Governments and the Private Sector, Mobius International, Richard H., explained Many of these people could be described as cranks and nutters, and in many ways, although their risk must be considered, they would, to my mind, pose a lesser importance to those threats emanating from terrorism. The far right is a well documented threat, but I would also add the far left were keen to see the royal family reduced in size or the complete removal of the monarchy the arrival of Meghan on the scene would i believe increase the figures somewhat for various reasons and towards the latter part of 2019 the disclosure of the intent to leave royal duties and move main residents to canada would also contribute as a major influencing factor on those figures increasing in addition The Prince Andrew controversy and the strongly critiqued television interview creates an increase in disregard for the royal family that potentially could have dangerous ramifications. Dangerous enough to have one of them needing to be backward rolling out of a car again perhaps? Who knows? Anything's possible, isn't it? This year, I wouldn't even be surprised if the DFS sale ends for good. A sports Direct takes its closing down signs out the windows. Armageddon, end of the world year. But with descriptions of events and stats like we've heard here today, Shakespeare surely hit it bang on when, in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Act Three, Scene One, he wrote, "Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown." the true crime enthusiast bringing culture to North Wales. What then do you think of the tale of Ian Ball and his ill-fated kidnap attempt on the Princess Royal? Was he being butch or was he being too much? It wasn't a case I was overly familiar with this one. I mean, I did know of it, but I'd never looked too much into it before Julia suggested it to me a while back for a show write-up. And on the basis of her previous efforts, Graham Young, Horrock Campbell, and the fabulous Feathers and the Golden Flute, which I still love so much, I snapped her hand off for it. I'd love to hear your thoughts concerning the episode, which you can share with me as ever in the discussion thread now up in the show's Facebook group, or through any of the show's social media channels. I'm always happy to chat with you guys wherever. My thanks as ever go out to Julia for researching and writing the episode up, As I've said I've only added cursory bits and bobs and I've adapted it to fit my own narrative. This has been Julia's toil. Putting it out there like Ken Barlow when a woman walks past him. If anyone listening has a case in mind that you think yeah I'd love to hear Paul recounting that. Be it a tale that's local to you or one that's always stuck with you. Perhaps that even in a roundabout way you may have a connection to. If you think it's a good fit for the enthusiast then by all means, please do get in touch with me about it and I'll get back to you. I love hosting these listener written episodes. That about brings the episode to a close. So I thank you for joining myself and Julia, of course. I hope that you found the tale as interesting and informative as I did. Look out for something further from Julia at a future date. With that then, I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.